0: I'm the co-dean at Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. So the great thing about doing this podcast is that it gives me an opportunity to talk to folks who are graduates of this law school and who've been out in the world doing amazing things. And today, the person who I get to talk to is Ted Treif. Ted, can you remind me of what year you graduated
1: 1976.
0: 1976. I wanted you to say that instead of me. So that's exciting. So you've, you've been out of law school for, for quite some time, which means that you've had a lot of opportunities to do some great things in the world. So I'm really interested in talking to you Thank today. you, but
1: don't remind me of how old I am.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll avoid that from now on. One of, the, one of the things that I like to do with people on this podcast is, is ask them about what I sort of call their origin story. You know, how is it that you ended up in law school in general? What was it that drew you to the law? And then we'll talk a little bit about your law school experience. So how did you end up becoming a lawyer?
1: I always wanted to be a lawyer. I, was a, I, I went to Bronx Science, which was a science and mathematics school, but I could never see myself having a career in math or science. Mm -hmm. I wanted the more collegiality that you'd get in a a law school education.
0: But why law? What was it that you felt like you could do with a law degree?
1: Well, you could do good things. Uh, I'm a very strong believer in the rule of law. And I believe in a civil society, it may be the most important thing that we have. So I'd be able to learn a lot. It wouldn't be stale. Every case requires you to learn things. And then I feel that we're doing good things.
0: Excellent. And you come from a family where there weren't other lawyers, is that right?
1: There weren't other lawyers. My parents were divorced when I was 10. My father was a motion picture operator. So, uh, And neither of my parents finished college. My mother started college.
0: And so what was that like? I mean, did you grow up with parents who felt like it was really important for you to be able to go to college and to finish college?
1: I was a good student, and they liked it. But I think they were not as focused as helicopter parents might be today.
0: Times have changed, definitely. So you grew up in New York, though. I grew up in the Bronx. In the Bronx in New York. And Bronx Science is an impressive high school to have gone to as well. Thank you. And then where did you end up for college?
1: I went to SUNY New Paltz, stayed in New York. I had a battle with my parents uh, about going away. Uh, they wanted me to go to Queens College. Mm-hmm. I had a Regis scholarship, so tuition was zero at, at New Paltz, But I had to pay for room and board, and that was a struggle with my parents. But oh, wow. I finally... Uh, one out about that.
0: So, what was that transition like then to go to college?
1: It was tough. I was—I had just turned 17. I was between 16 and 17 in okay. September.
0: You were quite young.
1: I was—I had skipped, and um, it was—it was hard, and particularly in those days in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, there was a lot of turmoil on campuses. Right. Uh, Kent State was my freshman year and my last wow. se- semester, freshman year.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So, how would you describe your college experience then?
1: A fog. (laughs) Uh.
0: (laughs) Uh, In a good way?
1: (laughs) Well, in good ways and bad ways. I mean, it was a real learning experience. You know, I I was much more mature my last two years than I was in my first two. Mm -hmm. But, you know, growth is, is not linear.
0: Right. And the hope is that when you go away to college that it is this opportunity for you to start at least to kind of feel like an adult to some degree.
1: And you're responsible for your own actions. Right and you have to learn what that means.
0: Right, absolutely. So you knew you wanted to be a lawyer, you went to SUNY New Paltz, graduated, did well there, and then targeted law school. And did you go to law school right after college?
1: I graduated a semester early and mm-hmm. worked as a taxicab driver for a few months and then backpacked in Europe and then started school.
0: And was that your first big travel experience?
1: I n- never went away as a kid anywhere. That was my first big travel experience.
0: So when you say you never went away as a kid, never left New York or just never left the States?
1: Maybe I left New York and went to New Jersey. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The big trip.
0: So So again, right? I mean, you leave to go to college and then you go to Europe by yourself after you graduate. And that seems like that would have been a really sort of significant life experience as well.
1: It was great. It was a great experience. I mean, I, I love meeting people who are different than me mm-hmm. and, you know, there's there nothing better than that.
0: Yeah. That's great to be able to do that. So you knew you wanted to go to law school. You made some money. You went backpacking, came back to the States ready to become a lawyer.
1: Ready to go to law school, yeah.
0: <laughs> ready to go to law school. And how did you end up at Rutgers? Why us?
1: Well, a couple of reasons. Rutgers-Camden in particular, because I I didn't want to be back in New York. Mm -hmm. I wanted to still be on my own. Camden was a little more traditional than Newark at the Mm -hmm. time, and I wanted a traditional law school education. And the economics was just incredible. And to someone who's supporting himself, that made a world of difference. Yeah, It was a gift to me, Mm -hmm. and I wish... Current students could have the same gift.
0: Yeah, I mean, even even keeping our tuition at the rate that it is now, which as compared to a lot of other schools is very reasonable, it's still law school's an expensive endeavor.
1: And it affects career choices too.
0: Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So you were then able to graduate with no debt.
1: I had a little bit of debt anyway, because because there's living expenses, right? And right. I, I worked. I worked part time during law school also. Okay. I did some free clinical stuff, mm-hmm. and then I was got paid for doing bail interviews at the Roundhouse in Philadelphia. The the Roundhouse in Philadelphia uh-huh. is a, is a police station, and um, before you see the judge, there there's a sheet that has to be filled out between that, that's handed up, mm-hmm. and it's for, for bail purposes to decide whether you would return. So I would be interviewing the defendants, right. uh, but I, that was a paid position.
0: Considering that you then ended up being an ADA for a period of time. It seems like it would have given you a glimpse into a particular system.
1: Well, we also, I also had a clinic at the US Attorney's Office at the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. through the law school, so I was getting experience there. Got it. And I was also doing work for the court-appointed master in Pennsylvania, doing okay. an investigation of the Philadelphia House of Corrections and other penal institutions in Philadelphia. So I was getting a lot of diverse experience in the criminal law.
0: Right. And that seems like it was, I mean, was it wasn't an accident that you were doing this criminal law related
1: No, I, I wanted to be a litigator. Yeah. I, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a civil litigator or a criminal litigator, but mm-hmm. I wanted to be in the courtroom. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I think is really interesting is that we're in this kind of amazing period of criminal justice reform and in particular for us here in Camden you know Philadelphia's DA now Larry Krasner is part of that wave of reform prosecutors who have come into office and i imagine it's probably if you were to do that kind of work now that you might have a very different experience of it
1: well dna has changed the world yes so but we had we didn't have dna right and so dna is a game changer i think
0: right so you were, you were working part-time while you were in law school, which is an experience that I think a number of our students have. But you weren't, you weren't a part-time law student. You were a full-time law student, but then you were working. And then how was that transition to law school? You said you wanted to have a traditional law school experience. Is that, do you feel like that's what you had here? I
1: did. I, I thought the education here was, was fabulous. Mm-hmm. To this day, I, lear- I use some of the things I learned. I love that. So I, I, I was very impressed with the education I got here.
0: And what was it about it that you found? I mean, I think that a lot of people think about law school, and they imagine these very intimidating classrooms, you know, with professors just standing in the front trying to humiliate students. Well, there's some of that. There's some of that, but, you know, it's in, in, right. in
1: everything in everything you do in life, there's good and bad. And so I had great professors. I had some professors I didn't think were great. but. sure. Overall, the experience was a very good experience.
0: So you went through your years of law school, and then you graduated. So what was your first job out of out of law school?
1: I was with the Bronx DA's office. Okay, as an um, ADA.
0: And was that a job that you got before you even graduated, or was it a job that you got after? Uh,
1: I I got it just at the end of my law school career.
0: Okay, so you are you're a newly minted attorney, and you go back to New York, which is still more of a kind of rough and tumble New York than what a lot of us are used to, and now. the Bronx in particular, and exactly. And then you were in the Bronx as an ADA. Let's talk about that experience a little bit.
1: You know, it, it, the, the Bronx was burning then, mm-hmm. and I walked in, and there were no working bathrooms except for the DAs and the judges. So it, it the, the building was falling apart. There was a hole in the wall where people threw garbage. Wow! And uh, the new building was. Was, was under construction, mm-hmm. and was completed about six months later. Okay. But I worked in a building that was, I mean, if you called it a slum, that would be a fair comment. Wow. And that's where justice was being dispensed then.
0: Wow. So I feel like that would make it really difficult to feel like you were doing work that was important and respected, if that's the physical space that you were in.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I always respected the law, and I, and I respected what I was doing. Yeah. Um, so that, that I, I didn't feel that it was being respected.
0: Right, right, boy. And
1: I guess the law is, is, is going through its own phases now where it's not being respected properly. Oh,
0: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, there are always, they're, they're always waves, right? So you're in this building, and you are given cases. You in, have so in, people's in, lives in your hands. In
1: those days, you could practice in the criminal courts, which, which are misdemeanor courts, in New York without being admitted. Mm. So before you pa- as long as you didn't fail the bar. Okay. And and you were still waiting for the results, you could actually practice. Okay. So I started practicing within a week or so after being trained. Wow. You started out doing arraignments. After the arrest, you go to see a judge, you might be spending a day in jail, and then the judge decides whether to release you or set bail at a certain amount of money.
0: Right. And when you're the person who's the ADA who is doing arraignments that day, you're just File after
1: file. It's file after file. It's like working in a factory. Right. And and there's no time to think. Right. And you're affecting people's lives. Absolutely.
0: That's one of the things that I think is, I mean, it's true sort of acro- ac- across many different areas of law that you're going to impact people's lives, sometimes in really significant ways. But in criminal court in particular, I think there's something really powerful about recognizing that the decisions that you are making literally can create this this fissure in someone's life. They're either going to go to jail or prison, or they're not going to go to jail or prison. And and how that plays itself out well, can pl- really determine a lot.
1: You're, you're actually looking at two different lives. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the lives of the victim and you're looking at the lives of the defendant. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you're not putting the wrong person in jail. Mhm. But you might want to make sure that you're putting the right person in jail. Right. And and you realize how much is how much weight is is on your shoulders, particularly then. Right. Now the prosecutor's offices are much more organized in a way that there's double checks and triple checks. Mm-hmm. But the decisions that I was making as an ADA were decisions on my own. Wow. I could choose the bail amount. I could Choose whether to ask to keep someone in jail or not. Right. And now I was 23 when I started.
0: Yeah, I was going to say you must have been very young.
1: So that's a lot. That's a lot to ask.
0: And particularly of somebody who, you know, at 23, you don't necessarily have a huge amount of life experience, and you're given these little short periods of time to look at these files and say, okay, this is a person who we should set bail really high, or this is a person who we should set bail really low, and then you have to sit with those decisions
1: Yes, and you have to care. right.
0: So you were doing arraignments and then how long were you in the DA, in the DA's office?
1: Uh, three and a half to four years
0: So it can't be the case that you did arraignments the whole time.
1: No 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 no, of no. only for a very short period of time. Yeah and then I went to grand jury. Okay and then I went to uh, a trial bureau where I tried rapes and robberies.: Wow and then I went to a specialized bureau where I tried children who committed serious felonies. Oh boy. So they were being tried as adults. So wow. there, there were two of us in that bureau at the end when I, when I left the office.
0: OK. One of the things that I often find really interesting in talking to people is you know, lots of folks have those, those cases that just sort of you know, sear into your brain. And I wonder if they're particularly when you're working with children who are accused of crimes and are being tried as adults. I imagine that there must have been some moments there that were pretty difficult.
1: One, one that's sort of seared in my brain is I, I had a homicide call for a year. So you'd go down to the police precincts where the defendant would be held, and if there was a confession, you would take a videotaped confession and give the Miranda warnings mm-hmm. to the defendant. And one late evening I was called down to one of the precincts in the South Bronx, and there was a, a, a child, 15 years old, who was a prostitute who was uh, being charged with murder. She had set her john up to be robbed and, and killed, oh, uh, and boy. killed in multiple ways, you know. It was a brutal, oh, brutal goodness. homicide. And she confessed to it in great detail. Her mother was present in the video room. And oh, I, at the end of this, which I always did, I, I would ask the defendant whether they had any questions. And she said she did. And I said, what is it? And she said, can I go home now? And uh, I came back home and I said, this is so sad. Wow. because she had absolutely no idea what she had done. So, what
0: do you, I mean, how do, you, how do you carry that around?
1: Well, that's part of the reason I left. It, mm. was, it got upsetting to me. I didn't want to spend my whole life in that environment.
0: And it's challenging. I mean, you know, again, you know, we're in this, this, this time of, of criminal justice reform and sort of trying to think about, you know, how do we have a system that, as you say, is a system that's fair to people who are victims or survivors, of crimes but also a system that is not you know putting people in prison who shouldn't be there and that's also sort of thinking about if we're not going to keep somebody in prison for the rest of their life you know how do we put people in a position where they can they can come back into the world and that's I, I didn't do criminal law either <laughs> because well, the, I think the that's flip, so difficult. The flip
1: side of this is so I've experienced both sides of the coin where people really ought to go to jail and people shouldn't go to jail and the, the society has to make those calls and they better make it right because they're affecting real people. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So you had this three and a half, you know, four years when you were an ADA and I want to sort of talk about where you went from there but one of the things that I'm also really curious about is were there things that you learned about either the law or yourself that moved you in a particular direction once you knew you didn't want to be an ADA anymore?
1: I experimented. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wasn't sh- Sure. I knew I didn't want to be a criminal defense lawyer. I wanted mm-hmm. out of that system. I thought I, I got the experience I wanted, and I wanted to move on. So I, uh, I took a job, doing defense work. I represented uh, Chrysler and Honda, mm-hmm. in product liability cases. Got it. Uh, I was there for two years. It was okay. Mm-hmm. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't what I wanted. And then uh, I left and worked with a gentleman who was about 20 years older than I was we had a successful firm and I decided I wanted to go out with my, myself with one of my partners there at that firm hmm and I, I formed my current firm in 1987 which has gone through its many changes also but
0: right one of the things that I often talk about with students is this idea that you know when you graduate from law school the job that you have when you graduate from law school is not necessarily the job you're gonna have five years out is not necessarily the job that you're going to have 10 years out, right? I mean, one of the things that can be really nice about a law degree is that it gives you this opportunity to kind of skip around to different things and figure out what's going to what's going to settle best for you.
1: Right. And sometimes things find you.
0: Right, right, right. So you were doing product liability and then you shifted gears a little bit and then ultimately you opened your own Firm, which I always think is just the boldest thing in the world.
1: It was scary. I had two young kids Uh and a house, so it's not so easy.
0: Yeah. So, you, I mean, you were just building from scratch, or did you have some folks who came with you from where you like some clients who came with you?
1: Well, I wasn't sure what clients came with me. Uh I didn't tell anybody before I was leaving because I thought that there was an ethical issue about. Telling him I was leaving. Mm-hmm. Once I left and opened my firm, I told people I was working with where I was, right, and everybody went with me.
0: Oh, look at that. Which I
1: had no idea that that would happen. Right. But you know, you still need time to build up money to take money out yourself.
0: Right, right, right. So how did you how did you build a client base? Well, uh, first, first, tell me what kind of work were you doing? Were you just sort of, you know, we'll do what comes in the door at first?
1: No, I, I was doing some products liability mm-hmm. work, which. I had a reputation from for the my from right. the other job, I had but I was doing it this time now on the plaintiff side. Right. So there were lawyers who would get products liability cases and didn't know what to do with them, mm-hmm. and, and knew that I had experience with Chrysler and Honda. Okay. So I got some of that. Mm-hmm. Some of the clients who I'd work with. So while I was at the that other firm, I was representing Harvey Comics, Casper the Friendly Ghost.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh
1: huh. And Marvel Comics. Was, wow. was buying the business. Mm-hmm. They were on the opposite side of me. They didn't buy the business, mm-hmm. but the person who was in charge of the sending legal work out mm-hmm. liked my work, started sending me work. There you go. Then I lost all that business when Ron Perlman bought the business. Yeah. <laughs> so that, those are the vagaries of life.
0: Right, right, right. So you were doing product li- liability work? In, um, your, in your own firm?
1: And commercial litigation.
0: Tell folks what commercial, like what kinds of things fall under commercial litigation.
1: Well, we did a bunch of licensing uh, litigation for uh, Marvel, mm-hmm. but we had other licensing and contract claims for them. Okay. We, uh, yeah, we had a very varied uh, commercial practice also.
0: Okay. And, you know, I say this as a torts professor, so I'm obviously very biased, that product's liability work can be incredibly detailed and incredibly difficult. You know, when it's something that's really obvious— then fine, maybe they just write you a check. But sometimes those can be incredibly complicated cases.
1: Oh yeah, sure. And and we we practice both in New York and New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So we're familiar with New Jersey rules and New York rules. Mm -hmm. And we had an opportunity once to bring a case in either state. But New Jersey's rules on products liability in the workplace was much more favorable than New York rules Mm -hmm. of products liability in the workplace. So if you remove a guard as an employer, Mm-hmm. In New Jersey, you can subject yourself to being sued by your employee. Uh, in New York, that doesn't apply. So we brought one of these, well, a very serious case in New Jersey. Right. And sued the employer and received a, a seven-figure resolution.
0: So you're doing these products liability cases. And one of the other things that I think that we don't always think about when we're in law school and we're getting ready to start practicing is, sure, you have to know the law But as you're doing these particular cases that have very, you know, specific, you know, think about people who are doing patent law or big pharma kinds of issues, that all of a sudden you have to understand stuff that you didn't imagine you would have to understand. Isn't that great? Yeah. (laughs) It can be, certainly. It's great.
1: Yeah. It keeps you fresh, right?
0: Absolutely. Right. So, So do you sort of feel like with each new case, it's kind of like, all right, now I have to learn... You know, how these are made and how somebody else makes them and what makes them safer or or less safe.
1: Yes, and it's fun. Yeah. You don't, that's one of the nice things about being a litigator, you don't get stale. You have to learn something new each time you have a case. Right. You either have to learn something new about the law or something new about business. Right.
0: There's so much conversation now about how many cases settle so that there's this vision, I think, that some people have that, litigation is not as important as it used to be that it's maybe not, you know, the thing that you should that you should target, but it seems to me that there's something about one litigation that's never going to go away, but also that it's a very particular type of career. So as you say, one thing is that you're constantly learning, that you're constantly sort of on your toes, but also that being in a courtroom is really different from other ways to practice law.
1: But litigation is just not just the courtroom. Sure. I mean depositions are a large part of mm-hmm. litigation. So mm-hmm. you're still using your cross-examination skills and your questioning skills, but you're not in a courtroom. Right. And that, and some of that's very very much enjoyable. Very, yeah, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what, you know, what courses were sort of on the roster when you were a student here, but we have, you know, a course on deposition advocacy that's specifically about how do you lawyer in that particular setting and how is it different, potentially, from being in a courtroom.
1: And it's exciting because you're thinking on your feet.
0: Right. One of the things that I have often heard people say, as they're, you know, students or others, as they're trying to kind of figure out what they want to do with their law degree is, oh, I could never be a litigator because, you know, I'm really quiet or, you know, I could never be a litigator because I'm not super comfortable talking in front of a bunch of people or you know, I could never be a litigator because I'm not, I'm not aggressive enough to do that kind of work. And my sense is that lots of different people can be litigators, and that there are lots of different ways to be somebody who's successful in a courtroom.
1: I think so. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think you can't be sensitive, mm. and you can't be afraid to lose. Mm-hmm. But you can have a, a lot of different paths to get to being a good litigator. Right, right. Because everybody who litigates is going to lose sometimes. Sure, and, you, you know, anybody who hasn't lost a case hasn't tried a case. Mm-hmm. And so, you, but you can't take it personally. You can't go home and shrivel up. Yeah. You have to go on to your next case. So I think you need that quality.
0: But then if you don't have those other things that people, you know, claim that you need to have, what do you think makes, what, what makes somebody good in a courtroom? Uh,
1: I, I think you need certain skills. Mm-hmm. You, you need to know where things are taking you. You mm-hmm. need to be a visioner. You have a vision mm-hmm. of where you're going. If you don't have those skills, it's, gonna, it's going to be hard. But you can, you can be soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. You can be theatrical. You can you know be tough. You can get to that same way with a lot of different personalities. Right. But you have to be thorough. You have to think logically. You have to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. And you have to listen to what someone is saying. Right. I mean, those kinds of qualities are important.
0: Right, right. So let's talk about being a person who has his own law firm, which we sort of talked about already as being difficult in a variety of different ways. But one of the things, and I think that this is true again of other professions, if you're you know, a physician who opens your own medical practice or you know, these other folks, that you are trained in a particular discipline, but once you open your own office, you're a business person.
1: Yes, in part. There are things that I think I can do because I have the skills to do them. Uh-huh. There are things I think I can't do because I don't have the skills to do them. Okay. And you need to separate those right. two things out. I don't think you should be doing things that you really have no clue on what you're doing Right. to, to develop a business. I do products liability work. Mm-hmm. I might be able to transfer that to construction litigation. I probably can't translate that to patent litigation.
0: Right, yes.
1: Yeah. So there are certain areas where you can really move your experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Let me go back to the business question again, though, because I think part of what I'm asking is that the the skill set of being a lawyer is not necessarily the same skill set of being somebody who runs a business, right? And who's sort of thinking about things like, oh, I have to make payroll, and I have to do this thing, and and so how do you how do you figure out how to be somebody who's running a business?
1: I from early on would try to take a, a- Pen to paper, mm-hmm. and try to analyze what I could reasonably expect to bring in, okay. and what my expenses were, okay. and then think about terms of how that was going to be met. You know, the first first year it was met by a, a secondary mortgage on my house. Yeah, that's but a big
0: risk. You have to really, you have to believe really deeply in yourself.
1: Yes, you, that's true. But you also need to be realistic and look and look carefully as to what you think the income for the year is going to be or the right. next year. I thought there'd be less expenses, startup expenses in year two than it would be in year one. And if I could keep the business coming in, it would pay for itself.
0: Right. So you've had some big cases. We have. Some big cases related to the, the, the work that you've been doing. And I'd love to, to hear about a few of those too.
1: Some of the more exciting things recently that that I've done is I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, with the debit overdraft cases. Mm-hmm. So the debit cards were issued to be something in, that was the equivalent of cash. Mm-hmm. So that you would use the money, you would spend the money, and it would come out of your account immediately. Right. And it was a good way for people not to overspend. Right. A lot of people who are using debit cards happen to be people who are, were el- elderly, minorities, students, people who m- you might be able to take advantage of. And the banks looked at this and said, these overdraft fees are gigantic money makers. So the expectation is, as you use a debit card, you would have the money automatically depleted from the account. And so I'll give you a very simple example. So if there was $50 in your account, and you went to Starbucks and charged $5, you'd have $45 left. Right. And then if you went to CVS and charged $10, there'd be $35 left, and et cetera. And then let's say the last charge was $60. That would overdraft your account. Right. But If you reordered them at the end of the day and had the largest charge done first, you can then have four or five overdrafts. To some people, that would put them into bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. To other people, they would just pay it. And they had a formula as to who they would deny the the overdrafts to and who they would let overdraft their accounts and then reorder them. So uh, we sued most of the major banks, Mm -hmm. a team of lawyers, 30 of them, 30 law firms. I was on the executive committee, mm-hmm. uh, and I led the litigation against uh, Citizens Bank. OK. And uh, many of those ca- most of those cases settled. Uh, the one against Citizens Bank settled for $137 million. So that was a very successful settlement. However, very interestingly and very apropos to today, two of the banks didn't settle, Wachovia and Wells Fargo. <laughs> and um, the law changed in the middle of the litigation by allowing corporations to compel consumers to waive their rights to class actions and at the same time arbitrate their claims. Mm -hmm. And so those who didn't settle received the benefit of these new laws, and they paid nothing. That case went up to the 11th Circuit, which affirmed uh, the decisions to compel arbitration and waive class actions, and the Supreme Court denied cert. So that's apropos for today.
0: Yeah. So on one hand, if if you're somebody who uses any kind of service or any kind of consumer product, probably at least a couple of times a year, you get some notice that you are part of a class. And on one hand, I think people feel like, oh, well, there are too many class actions, and it's just a money grab, and it's not you know, very useful. On the other hand, though, class actions are a really important way of making sure often that whole industries are acting in the best interests of people and consumers and so we have this sort of we're in this sort of challenging space i think where there's this sort of derisive way of talking about class actions but also maybe a lack of understanding about why class actions are important
1: it's a little bit like tobacco Mm -hmm. it's a misinformation campaign that's Mm -hmm. going on you know for years we heard that tobacco really wasn't bad for your health right now i think we can recognize that it is it, when you have class action waivers and arbitration clauses, mm-hmm. there are no remedies. Right. So the consumer is, has absolutely no remedy. And so you, you'll hear people who are against class actions talk about and give you examples of things. And there, there are some examples that you know we can argue about, like whether or not coupons should be this a settlement or not. And mm-hmm. I understand when someone says coupons should not be a settlement. Right. Uh, we don't settle cases on, for coupons. Yeah. But cash settlements are real remedies mm-hmm. and really discourage bad behavior. Yes. And you have some chance of being compensated. We, we handled a, a, a case against the Darden Restaurant Group, and it was an, a wage and hour class mm-hmm. where, it, where it's called an opt-in class. So okay. instead of automatically being a member, you have to request to be a member. So the average server got some thousands of dollars yeah. in our settlement. That's real money to someone who, who waits on tables.
0: Absolutely.
1: And that was a class case. Right. Interestingly enough, we brought it as a class case, and the judge dismissed it as a class case and compelled everybody to go to arbitration. But since we had so many class members who had already joined, we were able to bring them together in, in the arbitration phase okay. and ultimately settled almost every one of these cases.
0: Right. So there's the, there's the class action issue, right? Whether you can get a court to certify a class and whether there are statutes that get passed to make it impossible to do that. But the other piece of it that, that you've talked about is the arbitration piece of it. They right? go hand not in glove. people go into court.
1: They used hand in glove. Yeah. The case law mm-hmm. refers to an arbitration act that took place in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. That was an arbitration act that was designed for business-to-business relationships, not the consumer relationships. Okay. And they've jumped on that, and by by judicial decision, have permitted the compelling of arbitration. Right. If you put it in your contract, right. Even if the contract is not really signed, but is in, is just on a screen when yep. you when you charge your product.
0: Right. Which is so much of what we do now, just hitting a checkbox.
1: You know, in the overdraft cases, there they would they discussed the fact that the overdraft clauses, the provisions, were in the depositor agreement, which was (laughs) 30 pages. So I asked the head of overdraft services whether he was a depositor at at Citizens Bank. And he said, yes. And I said, did you read your depositors agreement? No. No. Because (laughs) they wouldn't let you read it, right? Right. Can you imagine reading a 20 or 30 page depositor agreement when you open up a bank account? You'd be sitting at the desk. They'd throw you out of the bank.
0: Right. And you'd also have to understand all these different... And, you know, you'd, and you'd ask
1: questions, and
0: right.
1: the bank would go out of business. Right, it, it's not designed to be read right. by a consumer.
0: Right, absolutely. And I would like to think in these kinds of cases, whether it's the overdraft case or whether it's the wage case, that those are things that change practices within an industry. Or at least they should.
1: Well, we, we took took we took the deposition of one of the one of the officers of Darden. Because of our litigation, they actually changed the rules in the middle of our litigation. Mm-hmm. So I know it have had effect because I saw it, and he said it did.
0: Right. Yeah. And and I guess. I mean, no. their
1: argument was it was an aberration that they were cleaning up.
0: Right. <laughs> that you were that you were kind enough to point out to that them we were kind enough so that to point they could out. Fix it. So what do you? I mean, in this world where we see these kinds of things going on, whether it's these arbitration clauses or these you know, refusals to certify classes or, you know, the fact that we live in this world where we are, you know, constantly agreeing to terms that we haven't read, and I'm just as guilty of that as anybody. Me too. So what does that portend for us for the, for the future?
1: Uh, the House of Representatives has passed legislation that addresses that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it hasn't passed the Senate and hasn't gone to the and the Senate's not considering it, but it's conceivable that, that within our lifetime, mm-hmm. there's gonna be statutes at the federal level because I think a lot of our legislators are aware of the problem.
0: Right. So let me ask you one more question, if you don't mind. You know, every every sort of choice that we make at various points has an impact on where we end up in life, and I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about how, when you look at the the sort of span of your life, how the decision to be a lawyer has set you on a particular
1: path? It's been a great career choice for me. I would not do anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uh, 67 years old now, and I'm still practicing law, and I still enjoy it. So I, I, I don't know how to answer the question other than um, it's been very good to me, as Rutgers has been very good to me in the past. I am uh, happy I chose it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ted. It was really wonderful talking to you today.
1: Nice seeing you again.
0: You too. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.